Hi, my name is Walter Block, and um, I'm delighted to be here with um, Ask an Austrian. I'm honored to be asked and delighted to partake in, in this uh, exercise. Uh, my main claim to fame is that I once shook the hand of Ludwig von Mises, and I never washed his hand. It's a little dirty, but if you shake my hand, you get to channel Mises. Uh, I'm also a professor of economics at Loyola University, New Orleans, and I'm always looking for good students. And I have several colleagues who are also Austro-Libertarians. So if you're thinking of, um, if you're in high school and thinking of coming to a university where you'll be welcomed, um, think of Loyola University, New Orleans. Okay, I've got a whole bunch of questions. Uh, a lot of them are inspiring and interesting, and I'm gonna try to, um, uh, deal with, uh, with with them as best I can. Uh, I don't think I have to say to this group that Austrian economics has got nothing to do with the country Austria. It's just that the main creators of it, the originators of it, Mises, uh, Bombavirk, uh, Menger, um, Hayek, all came from the country Austria. Uh, that's why it's called Austrian economics. It might also be called the praxeological school because it believes in in logic, it's it's a um, uh, a theory of logic rather than an empirical uh, theory uh, that most mainstream economists see it as. Okay, with that brief introduction, we have Antonio Padilla. What are your thoughts on the status of U.S. territorial uh, places such as Guam, the Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico? What would libertarianism say about such status? Well, I guess this is not only <laughs> uh, ask an Austrian, this is a libertarian question. It's not an Austrian question. Uh, a lib libertarianism, you know, a lot of us are Austro-libertarians, namely we're Austrian economists and also libertarians, but the two have to be kept separate. Uh, Austrian economics is a, a, a positive uh, uh, enterprise. It asks what causes what? How do we understand economic reality? It's not a normative enterprise, which has the word should in it, namely what should be, whereas libertarianism is. Libertarianism is a theory of what the law should be. And what it says is that the law should be uh, predicated on the non-aggression principle and private property rights based on homesteading. Okay, so this is a libertarian question, and my view, well, you know, there's that joke that if you ask 10 libertarians a uh, question, you look at 11 different answers. Well, uh, I can only give my view. My view would be that Guam and the Virgin Islands and uh, Puerto Rico uh, should all um, sever relationships with um, the United States. They should go their own way. They should secede. Uh, they should set up on their own, um, uh, on their own, and uh, they should all embrace anarcho-capitalism. Okay, next question. Um, Sam Peterson, what do you think is the best strategy to achieve liberty in our lifetime? Well, one of my articles, one of the articles that I'm most proud of is, uh, I forget the title of it. It's something like a sociobiological analysis of why we're not why we're, we're losing the war, why, why we don't have libertarianism. I mean, um, what's the usual libertarian party vote? 1%, 2%? Um, um, my friend Mark Victor in um, Arizona is now polling at 15%, which is very unprecedented. But usually libertarians, you know, 1%, 2%, 2% that's all we get. And this article of mine with two co-authors uh, says, 
asked, why is it that? Why is that libertarianism so unpopular? And the answer is a, a sociobiological answer that we're hardwired for socialism. Why are we hardwired for socialism? Well, because a million years ago when our biology was, was set, we lived in groups of, oh, 15, 20 people and uh, maybe 30 people. And um, uh, cooperation was very, very important because if you didn't cooperate, uh, <laughs> they kicked you out of the tribe and you didn't leave too, much, uh, too many progeny. So cooperation and e equality and egalitarianism are all sort of... Uh, bred into us. Uh, we're hardwired for that. But uh, uh, being appreciative of free enterprise system means buying and selling and making profits. You don't do that with your cousin or with your aunt or your uncle or your mother or your father. Uh, so uh, the reason that we libertarians are losing is because uh, biology is against us. And uh, maybe in, um, I don't know, a thousand or 10,000 years or a hundred thousand years when the biology can change, maybe there's a hope for liberty then, but certainly not now. So um, uh, the case for pessimism, does that mean that we shouldn't try to promote liberty? Uh-oh, <laughs> I mean, the, it, it, if there's anything I do, it's to promote liberty and, and uh, good Austrian economics. So getting back to the question, What's the best strategy to achieve liberty in our lifetime? What's the best strategy to promote liberty as best we can? And my strategy is two words, have fun. If you're not having fun, you're going to burn out and you're not going to promote liberty. So the key is, is to have fun. And if your thing is giving speeches, if you're eloquent, do that. If writing is your thing, uh, do writing. If uh, make, making a novel like Ayn Rand's novel, which has converted more people to libertarianism than any other novel, Atlas Shrugged, uh, you know, do that. If your thing is um, making movies or uh, telling jokes or whatever it is that, that you enjoy, do that. That's, that's my strategy. And, and my own joy is being a professor and being a writer and doing interviews like this. I really enjoy this sort of a thing. And that keeps me going. So just because I don't think that we're going to win doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. I mean, um, you know, I have children, I have grandchildren, I want to make the world a little bit better place for them than it would otherwise be, but for my actions. So I've devoted my whole intellectual life, uh, professional life, to promoting liberty. And I really enjoy it. Murray Rothbard was once called the happy libertarian. Well, I'm like that too. I'm like Murray in many, many ways. He was my mentor, my guru, and I follow his lead in, in many ways. And, and the big problem with Murray Rothbard was stomach cramps because of laughter. I mean, he would keep you in stitches for hours and hours, and, and then you, you just stagger away. Um, uh, uh, just, um, it was great. Harry uh, was magnificent. Okay, the next question is, how do you demonstrate that you've homesteaded land? Do you agree with Rothbard that you must demonstrate you're willing to defend the land, that it must be clear that the land has been homesteaded for it to be yours? What if you buy land with the intention of viewing it in its unaltered state? Uh, would that not be a legitimate claim to the property if all you ever did was look at it from a distance? Well, that's that's a five-part question. Um, uh, I've written um, three books on privatization, and I recommend all three. One is Privatizing Roads and Highways, It'll Save Lives. One of them is Privatizing Oceans, Rivers, and Lakes, Also Save Lives and Stop the Tragedy of the Commons of you know, Losing Fish and Losing Whale. Whales. And the third one is privatizing um, uh, space. Uh, 
the space race should be privatized. And when we get to the moon and the Mars, we should have private property there as well. Um, well, how do you get to own stuff? I'm a John Lockean, a Murray Rothbardian, a Hans Hoppian. Uh, these are three people who have done more than any other people uh, to promote the um, mixing uh, of labor with the land to show that you own it. Well, you own yourself. And now what you do is you clear some trees and you put in a, a corn plant and you domesticate a cow and you start a farm and um, uh, you're homesteading it. And uh, after a while, a season or two, um, um, you get to own it. Now, let me raise the issue of the continuum. What's the continuum? Well, the continuum is, what's the continuum? The continuum is uh, a situation uh, of gradations. Uh, for example, uh, right now, um, I'm going to uh, punch you. I'm punching you. <laughs> Do you have a right to shoot me in self-defense? No, uh, because, um, you know, I'm kidding and I, you know, it's a Zoom and I can't hurt you. On the other hand, if I get close to you in an alley and it's dark, and um, and uh, you see my watch and you think it's a knife, well, then you have a right to shoot me. Um, well, where do you draw the line? The point is you can't draw the line. Uh, you have to decide whether I'm guilty of a crime or not based on uh, a reasonable man. I mean, the, the context, how close we are, what the uh, situation is between us, whether... Uh, whether I am a criminal or not. Or let's take another case of a continuum. Uh, what should be the statutory rape age? We know that if you go to bed with a five-year-old girl, even if she agrees, you're a statutory rapist and you're a criminal uh, because we don't think she's of an age where she can uh, coherently agree. On the other hand, um, a 25-year-old woman, you go to bed with her, whatever you are, you're not a statutory rapist because we believe that a 25-year-old woman uh, is adult enough to decide whether she wants to go to bed with you or not. Well, where do you draw the line? What does libertarianism have to say about them apples? Nothing. We libertarians are uh, have no more insight onto this continuing problem than anyone else. Oh, it's got to be somewhere in between, I don't know, 16, 18, somewhere in there. Uh, I think 14 is too young. I think 21 is too old. That's me. You might have a different view. How do you settle this? Well, the community has to get together and decide in some way. Or if we have anarcho-capitalism, then the courts decide, the, the free enterprise courts would decide that sort of a thing. But what a continuum means is that you can't say, well, look, the proper statutory rape age is uh, 16 years and seven months. Because, you know, why not 16 years and eight months or 16 years and six months? Uh, so a continuum is uh, something where you, you can't, deduce from the non-aggression principle what the statutory rape age is, and you can't deduce how far the fist has to be from somebody else's nose before you can say, oh, well, if it's three inches, you're a criminal, but if it's four inches, you're not. It depends on the context. Okay, so now let's get back to homesteading. Well, how many years do you have to homestead? Um, Murray used to say, well, um, and, and also, how intensively does the homesteading have to be? Do you have to put a, a corn plant every inch, every square inch, every square foot, every square yard? What? And you can't deduce any of this from libertarianism either. And what Murray used to say is east of Mississippi, where uh, the land is more fertile, uh, a family of four needed oh, 160 acres, and uh, three years was uh, his pick. 
It's arbitrary. Why not two years? Why not four years? You have to pick something, and and the community would pick this, or the the, the private courts would pick this. Then he said, Western Mississippi is less fertile. A family of four needs sixteen hundred acres instead of one hundred and sixty acres. Well, you know that seems reasonable to me. Uh, but if somebody said, well, no, it should be fifteen hundred or seventeen hundred acres, uh, I, as a libertarian, couldn't say, oh no, no, you're wrong. It's got to be sixteen. Uh, these are continuum issues. Okay, the next thing here is, do you have to demonstrate you're willing to defend the land? No, I don't think you have to uh, defend the land. I own myself, and uh, if I'm a pacifist or if I'm weak, I'm in a wheelchair or something like that, and somebody uh, comes along and attacks me, I don't have to defend myself. I can hire people to do it, uh, uh, private police, hopefully, uh, public police. Uh, so I don't think you have to defend the land in order to uh, demonstrate that you're the proper owner of it. Um, must it be clear that the land has been homesteaded for it to be yours? Well, how clear? That's the uh, continuum problem, and I have no answer to that one. What if you buy land with the intention of viewing it in its unaltered state? I wrote an article with my colleague, um, Michael Edelstein, on this. Uh, suppose you want to have a nature uh, preserve, and uh, you... Uh, a nature preserve means not touched by human hands or human feet. Uh, but, but you want it so that people can contemplate it and, and look at it, its beauty. And how can you do that? And my colleague and I came up with a wild-eyed scheme. And what we said is, look, you don't have to mix your labor with the land. Uh, a lot of the ways that you would um, get to own land in western Mississippi is not with you, but with your cow or with your horse. In other words, if you had a herd of cows and they were in 1,500 or 1,600 acres, you don't have to be in every one of those acres as long as your herd of cows is. So what this colleague of mine, friend, Michael Edelstein and I concocted was, what you do is you got a bunch of ants and you get a bunch of worms and you get a bunch of, I don't know, things like that elsewhere and you throw them onto the nature preserve, uh, like your cows, and, and they'll, they'll homestead it for you. Now, how many acres you can do this for and how intensive you have to be is a, a continuing problem, but you can get to own a nature preserve without um, mixing your labor with the land. You get your animals to mix their labor with the land, namely the, the, the worms and, and the bugs and uh, creatures like that. Okay, the next question is also on homesteading. Uh, Eric Rivera, hello, Dr. Block. I have several questions for you regarding homesteading and the privatization of subsurface minerals. How should mineral rights be homesteaded? As soon as coal enters the mine, I'm not going to read the whole thing. This is a very, very long uh, paragraph. But I would recommend my book on um, uh, privatization of oceans. Uh, why privatization of oceans and rivers and lakes? Because they're liquid. And he's mainly talking about oil. He's talking about oil wells. And, and if somebody does uh, uh, something to your oil well, what, what's going on? And, and how can you um, uh, own aquifers? Aquifers are um, deposits of water that are beneath the surface. And what my co-author and I of this book say is that um, water, bodies of water, should be privatized. And my motto is, if it moves, privatize it. If it doesn't move, privatize it. And since everything either moves or doesn't move, you privatize everything. 
Well, uh, water is something. I mean, look, um, uh, uh, Mississippi River uh, during uh, Katrina. Katrina missed New Orleans by oh, 40 miles. It hit Mississippi mainly, but 1,900 people died. Why did they die? Because the levees uh, fell. Well, who was in charge of the levees? The Army Corps of Engineers, a government enterprise. Well, if the Mississippi River were privately owned, um, and and the private Mississippi River uh, killed 1,900 people, well, that would be the end of that company. Somebody else would get to own the Mississippi River. Look, if McDonald's killed 1,900 people, there'd be no more McDonald's. You'd go to Burger King or Wendy's or, uh, or pizza or, or something like that. So all I'm trying to do is take economics in one lesson of Hazlitt and, and try to apply it to areas that it hadn't been applied to before, namely rivers. Who thinks of uh, privatizing rivers or oceans? Even Robert Nozick said, well, if you pour a can of um, uh, tomato juice into the ocean, you've just wasted your uh, tomato juice. You don't, well, how else are you going to get to own the ocean unless you mix something of yours with it and tomato juice is as good as the next thing. Now, you're not going to get to own much of the ocean with one can of tomato soup, but you know, uh, you'll get to own something, I would say contrary to, to Nozick. So um, water, uh, you know, people say, well, water is different than land. You can own land, but you can't own water. But but because they're so different, but they're not so different. I, I want to look, focus. Yeah, of course they're different. They're different. But I want to look at the similarities. One similarity is that um, uh, water moves and, and land doesn't move. But that's not true because land moves. Uh, mudslides and, and um, eruptions of volcanoes, land is moving. And then there's water that stays still, ice, icebergs, when they're, they're stuck where they are. So uh, I'm trying to make an analogy between water and land and say if we can privatize land, and we should, well, then uh, we should privatize water as well. Uh, let's see if I can get my... Um, uh, which I'm gonna call it uh, to work. Um, here we go. Whoops, what have I been wrong? I think I've lost everything. Ah, oh, no, I'm back. I'm gonna try to share a screen. And um, the screen I'm gonna try to share, let's see if this works. In, in Russia, uh, what you had was um, private land and public land. And, and this was the land. And then you had crops, and uh, the uh, private land was three um, percent of the land, and the public land was a ninety-seven percent of the land. So this is land over here. I should put it there, and this is crops. And uh, on the um, private crops, the, the front yard, backyard of the workers, twenty-five percent of the crops, and on the ninety-seven percent of the um, uh, a land that was collectivized farm, they only produced 75% of the uh, the crops. Well, now let's do the uh, a similar thing for um, uh, oceans and uh, land. Here is oceans. Come on, oceans. 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 And here's land. I'm not drunk. It, it's I'm having trouble with the stupid thing here. Uh, <laughs> I, I, for some reason, I can't get the, the stupid thing to draw. But let me just tell you this: um, it's a similar sort of um, uh, uh, disproportion. Uh, uh, the oceans uh, comprise seventy-five percent of the Earth's surface, and the land twenty-five percent of the Earth's surface. Uh, 
And on the oceans, how much of the world GDP do they produce? One percent. How much uh, do they produce on the 25 percent of the Earth's surface that's on the land? 99%. Now, this is a little unfair because most of the people are on the land, but, you know, all's fair in love and war and, and, and making exaggerations uh, to prove that private property rights are, are, are good. Uh, for some reason, I can't get this thing to work. Well, I, I think I got the point across to you. Um, so anyway, I favor um, uh, privatization of not only um, uh, water, but also oil, uh, any any liquid. Look, I mean, orange juice is private. Uh, milk is private. Uh, there's nothing about oil that, that shouldn't make it private. And and if um, I own uh, an oil pool and you, what are, what are you talking about? Uh, an act of aggression uh, damages to somebody else's oil pool. Well, then, you, you know, you just call the cops. Uh, it, it's trespass. It's trespass whether it occurs on land or on water. And if I own a certain body of water, if I own the Mississippi River and, and you step on it or swim in it without paying me, well, then, then you're a trespasser. So it would be the same sort of a thing. Okay, here's one from Sachin Patel. Patel, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. How can migratory birds be privatized? They often travel from continent to continent. Isn't it possible to privatize them. Well, you know, it's funny. I, I just sent out, uh, I, I just published an article on this, and I'm hoping that it'll be able to be sent out to all of you if if you would give me your email addresses. By the way, my email address is wblock, W-B-L-O-C-K, at loino.edu, L-O-Y-N-O, Lewis Oliver Yellow New Orleans edu for education. Uh, so if you email me, I will send you my article on how you can um, privatize migratory birds. Uh, right now, let me just uh, reiterate briefly what I said in the article. It's an actual published article. I forget where I published it, uh, but it's an article. Well, first of all, uh, how are these birds uh, traveling from continent to continent? Who do they think they are? We don't want bird freedom. We want um, uh, human freedom. Uh, the same with fish. I mean, the fish want to go here and there. No, we put fences. We keep the fish where we want them. Well, we capture a bunch of birds, and uh, we don't let them go continent to continent. We get a big, um, I don't know, tent or something. You know, they already had that for... Um, 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 uh, what do you call it? Butterflies. Uh, they do have private butterfly farms or private butterfly tourist attractions. You go in there, there's zillions of butterflies all over the place. Well, if we can privatize uh, butterflies, uh, we can privatize birds. Now, it's possible that we couldn't make big enough um, uh, tents to keep a migratory bird healthy. Well, then uh, we have other ways that we could do it. What we could do is shoot in a little... Um, I don't know, electronic thing, and especially if it's a big bird, uh, and and now uh, you own that bird and you own uh, the whole flock. Uh, would there be um, a bird um, uh, theft or uh, bird rustling, like cow rustling? Yeah, but, you know, there's always theft, and, and uh, uh, we, we can ignore theft when trying to figure out how to um, uh, how to make this thing work. Uh, so what we could do is... Um, uh, with whales, um, shoot some sort of electronic thingy into them, and now that's your whale. And if somebody uh, else grabs it, uh, you know, it's whale theft or whale rustling, and, and uh, we, we get the police uh, to stop that sort of a thing. 
what do I think of Hornberger's take? Oh, this is Mike C. I, I don't know uh, what his last name is. It just says Mike C. Like Mike Charles or something like that. What do you think of Hornberger's take on the libel slander laws? Well, I don't know. Uh, Bumper Hornberger is a great guy. He's a buddy of mine. I just don't happen to know his views on um, uh, libel and slander, but he's a staunch libertarian. Uh, so I assume that his views are the correct views, namely my views, he said modestly. Uh, namely, that we shouldn't have any. <laughs> you shouldn't have any libel laws because people should be free to libel each other. Now, look, I'm not a um, absolutist on free speech. There are certain words that if you say you're a criminal, for example, the statement, give me your money or I'll shoot you. It's just words, just words. And yet if you say that, I mean, seriously, I'm not saying it seriously. So don't accuse me of being a criminal. But if you seriously say to somebody, give me your money or I'll shoot you, that is a threat. And uh, and if it's not in a play and if it's not in a, a lecture on, on libertarian theory or anything like that, uh, it, it's a crime. So I'm not an absolutist on free speech. There are certain things you shouldn't say. And one of them is a, a, a threat um, or, or an order. If you don't go rob the bank, shoot you or something like that. But libel and slander is very different. Uh, what that is, is um, I, I'm now going to say you take a bath with a rubber ducky. And I've just libeled you because uh, if people find out you take a bath with a rubber ducky, uh, your girlfriend will leave you, your, your employer will fire you, uh, you'll be in all sorts of trouble, and I've ruined your reputation. No one will like you because you take a bath with a rubber ducky. Even I've ruined your reputation. But what does your reputation consist of? What your reputation consists of is the thoughts of all the rest of us about you. But you don't own the thoughts of all the rest of us about you. Therefore, paradoxically, you don't own your own reputation, even though you work hard to um, uh, build it up. And uh, when a business is sold, goodwill, namely reputation, is a big part of the sale uh, price. Uh, so it, it's a paradox that... Um, uh, um, uh, you don't own it, and yet you work hard to get it, and you can profit from it. Uh, another paradox is that reputations be safer without libel laws, because with libel laws, you know, I saw it saying, well, you take a, a bath with a rubber ducky, and people say, well, you know, uh, with a smoke this fire, maybe he takes a bath with a rubber ducky. Um, whereas if there were no libel laws, uh, the the uh, libel would come thick and fast. You know, right now in the newspapers, uh, uh, we have uh, for sale uh, boats, for sale this, uh, rental, uh, uh, singles looking for a mate. Uh, now we'd have libel sections. You know, this one's a commie, this one's that, this one's uh, racist, this one's uh, no good, Nick. And no longer with a mere allegation suffice to ruin a reputation. So there's a lot of paradoxes here. One is you own it, uh, you own your reputation, you work for it, you benefit from it, you don't own it because it consists of other people's thoughts. And the other paradox is reputation should be safer without what belongs. This reminds me of an incident occurred. Uh, the New York Times libeled me. And uh, <laughs> they quoted me as favoring slavery, actual slavery. They, they quoted me as favoring slavery. Uh, I, I figured voluntary slavery, which is a, a I was going to say slightly different, but very, very different. The model here is uh, my son, God forbid, has a horrible disease and it'll cost him, uh, cost me $20 million to save his life. And I don't have any 20 million. I don't have anything like that. 
but I value his life more than my freedom. And you, you're Bill Gates, you're very rich, you've long wanted me to be your slave. I'll come to your um, plantation, I'll give you economics lessons, you don't like them, you can whip me, you can kill me. This is not indentured servitude. You kill an indentured servant, you're a murderer. But you kill me, I'm your slave, no crime. Now, um, Murray Rothbard, with whom I disagree on this, says, well, you know, you can't um, alienate the will. But I say, Will Schmill, we're not talking about the will. We're talking about if Bill Gates kills me after he paid me the 20 million, is he a murderer or not? That's all. And obviously, you can't uh, alienate the will. I can still have my thoughts unless I'm drugged out of them. Uh, but both both people benefit from this because I value my son's life more than my freedom, and Bill Gates values my uh, servitude more than twenty million. So I was trying to explain this to the New York Times, and these illegitimate they quoted me as saying, "Actual slavery was legitimate; it wasn't so bad, you know." Uh, ah. So I sued them. Well, how do I reconcile suing them with what I just said about libel laws? I sued them under libel laws. Well, I, I, I snuck out of this one. I, I said, well, they're part of the ruling class. And, and when you're in the ruling class, the libertarian rules don't apply. It only applies to normal, innocent people. I, I had to sue them. I mean, I feel so badly. People were, the, the president of my university was excoriating me for favoring slavery. And the students, 500 of them, got a, a petition that, Fire me for favoring slavery. Of course, 6,000 also got another petition saying, give me more money. But let me go to the next question. Oh, one of my thoughts on the Alex Jones trial. Poor Alex Jones. I mean, what did they want? 50 million because he, he made a historically inaccurate statement? Look, I, I don't think Columbus discovered America. I think he discovered uh, Mars. Uh, do I owe anyone 50 million? I mean, uh, I think two plus two is five. I think the earth is flat. I'm, I'm claiming all sorts of ridiculous things. And, okay, look, the people there uh, were unhappy. And, um, uh, but <laughs> we have to have free speech. And, and with free speech, um, you have a right to say whatever you damn well please, as long as you're not threatening anyone. So I think Alex Jones shouldn't owe anything to anyone. And I hope this gets up to the Supreme Court. And I hope that the Supreme Court, under its present uh, uh, makeup, um, uh, finds him innocent and, and, and um, I don't know, sues the, 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 the plaintiffs for a frivolous lawsuit. Zach Sklars, Sklars. Who are some non-Austrian economists to read? Well, um, Gary Becker, uh, my dissertation advisor at Columbia, Nobel Prize winner. He's not an Austrian. I tried to convert to Austrianism, but it didn't really work. Uh, what happened was um, I was doing my uh, dissertation on rent control, and I uh, had an econometric equations uh, set. And my independent variable was how much rent control a city had. And my dependent variable was, well, how good was the housing? Holding everything else constant that I could think of, um, uh, like wealth or, I don't know, weather or crime rates or anything else I could think of. And most of the time, I got the right sign, namely more rent control, lousier housing. And it was statistically significant. Every once in a while, I got the wrong sign. And every once in a very rare while, the wrong sign was statistically significant. And now Gary Becker, my dissertation advisor, if he were a true blue 
uh, mainstream, he would have said, oh, I've got this young, I'm, I'm now 81. I was young then when I was getting my PhD. I've got this young uh, uh, genius who's going to show that everything we know about rent control is all wrong. No, he didn't say that. He he acted like an Austrian. He said, look, Block, go out and do it again until you get it right. Namely, what was testing what? Were my crappy econometric equations testing what we know about rent control from supply and demand? No, it was the other way around. Uh, economic theory was testing my econometrics. And um, I, I, I try to convert them, and I didn't make it, but, you know, I tried. Another uh, good person is Isaac Ehrlich. Uh, he did some very good stuff. Uh, he, uh, a fellow student of mine at Columbia when we were getting our PhD, who was a year or two ahead of me. See, the, his contribution is, well, I don't have to say what Gary Becker's contribution was. Uh, he, he was sort of uh, an imperialist over sociology. He would uh, talk about, uh, he would apply economics to areas that before him were mainly the province of sociologists, marriage and uh, um, divorce and having children and, and uh, stuff like that, and also crime. And uh, Isaac Ehrlich, another student of Gary Becker's, um, did some very good work. And what he did was, you know, uh, we're trying to figure out, will the death penalty lower the murder rate? And if you compare all the states uh, with death penalty and all the non-death penalty um, states, and then you look at the murder rate per capita, holding everything else you can think of constant, um, uh, you get nothing. Namely, you don't get any statistical correlation between uh, having a death penalty and lowering the murder rate. The murder rate is the same whether you have a, a death penalty or not. So what Isaac Ehrlich did, genius, uh, he, uh, instead of uh, looking at death penalty, he looked at execution states. Because there were certain, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, death penalty states that never execute. Like California, it was a death penalty state, but it never executed anyone. So he, he uh, instead of looking at murder rate, uh, instead of looking at death penalty states and the murder rate, he looked at execution states and the murder rate, and he found very uh, statistically significant results. Namely, uh, uh, those states that executed had much lower uh, murder rates. Uh, interesting stuff. Uh, look, we, you know, we Austrians are not ec against econometrics. Many Austrians uh, misunderstand this. We're not against econometrics. Uh, what we're against is testing laws with econometrics. You don't test uh, 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 the law about rent control or minimum wage or free trade or any of that stuff. Uh, what you can do is illustrate them. And sometimes we can succeed and sometimes not. But we can only illustrate. Or if you want to know what the elasticity of price of bananas is, we Austrians have no law about that. It depends. And if you want to find that out, you can only use econometrics. So we're not against uh, using it. We're, we just interpret it differently than the mainstream. Uh, who else? Um, Non-Austrian economists to read. Well, I don't know. Is Ron Paul? Uh, uh, by the way, I have here a Ron Paul t-shirt. Uh, is Ron Paul um, an economist? I don't know. Well, he doesn't have a PhD. He's got a medical degree, and, and he was been a... Uh, been a, uh, a congressman for many years. So I don't know if he's an economist or not, but 
Um, if he's not, well, <laughs> certainly read him. Uh, read Lou Rockwell. Lou Rockwell doesn't have a PhD in economics. I mean, it depends on how you define economics. Ron Paul and Lou Rockwell and Andrew Napolitano, another non-PhD uh, economist, are magnificent economists. So I'm not sure how you define an economist, whereas there are plenty of people with a PhD in economics that um, don't know much about economics. How about some thinkers who are not economists at all? Well, I don't know. David Gordon, his PhD is in philosophy. Um, um, uh, most of the people at the Mises Institute, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Mises Institute uh, and FEE, Foundation for Economic Education, uh, are many of them are not a PhD economist, and yet they're very good economists. Um, Robert Nozick is a PhD in philosophy, uh, uh, a great libertarian, not a, not an anarchist, but you know, pretty damn good. Uh, one of the brilliant lines that, that he came up with, uh, Robert Nozick, that I use forever, is capitalist acts between consenting adults. The lefties are always going on about uh, uh, anything between consenting adults. And then what they mean by it, sex, drugs, you know, stuff like that. And those who said, well, how about capitalist acts between consenting adults? Shouldn't that also be legal? And um, so these would be some good people. What's my view on legal polycentrism? I had to look that up. I didn't know what it was. What it is, uh, I understand now, is um, uh, two different sets of laws in the same territory. And the alternative would be a monopoly law. Uh, and each territory would have its own law. Well, I'm a monopolist here. I favor monopoly. I don't think you should have two different legal uh, uh, principles in the same geographical area. Actually, uh, the same geographical area is the whole Earth. I think we should have only one legal system for the whole Earth and for Mars and the moon and wherever else we go. And that's the libertarian um, um, legal system of non-aggression and private property rights. Uh, any other legal system is, to the extent it deviates from that, is wrong, and we shouldn't have it. Michael M., what is evictionism, and how would you respond to the criticism of evictionism that libertarianism isn't opposed to positive rights per se? Well, this goes on for a bit, so let me just talk about evictionism. Uh, actually, I have a book out on that, but I don't recommend it. I made a mistake in publishing it with them. I think it's Springer Press, and it costs like 300 bucks, some crazy amount of money. But if you want my views on that, just Google Walter Block and evictionism, and you'll find many, many articles. I must have written, I don't know, 25 articles. A lot of them are criticizing libertarianism, libertarians who uh, disagreed with me on that, and I'm trying to set them straight. Okay, so what's, what's going on here? Uh, what's going on here is that there are two mainstream views, sort of like the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. Uh, the Democratic Party is mainly pro-choice, and the Republican Party is mainly pro-life. And even within libertarianism, we have disagreements. Murray Rothbard was pro-choice, and Ron Paul is pro-life. And I put it to you, you can't get two better libertarians than, than Murray and Ron, and yet they're both wrong. Because evictionism is the only correct theory. He said modestly, but I, I think it is the only uh, uh, correct one. See, uh, what's going on here is that the uh, pro, th there are really two issues here. One is uh, the right to evict and the other is kill. Look, let, let's take a, 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 the case of rape. Woman's walking down the street. She gets grabbed. She gets raped. She gets impregnated. 
And now there is an innocent person inside of her. Which leads me to the question, when does life start? I should have started with that. When does life start? Well, some people say, Murray says, uh, life starts with birth. But I, I find that uh, uh, unacceptable. Because the baby, 10 minutes before he's born and 10 minutes after he's born, uh, a separation of 20 minutes, is the same baby. He's as similar as you or I 10 minutes ago and 10 minutes from now. Uh, birth is just a change of address. It's the same person, uh, the same creature. Only one time, uh, 10 minutes, he's inside a womb, and then he's outside the womb. It's the same baby. Uh, my view would be that the... Um, uh, the um, uh, human life starts with the fertilized egg. Because the fertilized egg, uh, given enough time and, and, and in a good environment, will grow up and be a person like you or I. Whereas the sperm alone will not eventuate into a person, the egg alone will not, but the, uh, the egg with the sperm inside of it will. So that's when life starts, as far as I'm concerned. You know, in the Jewish tradition, uh, life starts when you graduate medical school. I'm kidding. That, that, that's a joke. <laughs> I find that funny, but uh, some people don't. Uh, actually, um, the, the real Jewish position is uh, when the heart beats. But I don't see that that is any big deal. Because look, suppose I need a heart transplant. Well, for a minute or two or for a half hour or so, I don't have any heartbeat. So it would be okay to kill me? And if you killed me... If you shot me, you would only be uh, shooting a dead body because I don't have a heartbeat? No, that's crazy. Uh, you know, or, or if you have a heart attack for a minute or 10 minutes, your heart isn't beating. Uh, that doesn't mean that you're not a human being. You're still a human being. So heartbeat, smartbeat. I, I don't believe that that is the difference. So I, I think that the um, baby starts, uh, human beings start with the fertilized egg. But the baby who is inside this Rape woman is an innocent trespasser because she owns that body. Who owns that, that body first? She's uh, 30 years old. She's been with that body for 30 years. Uh, the baby has only been with her for, um, you know, a half hour. Uh, that baby is an innocent trespasser. Now, look, suppose somebody, suppose I, I drug somebody and, uh, and I stick him in your house. He's an innocent trespasser. Do you have a right to kill him? No, you don't have the right to kill him. Uh, but do you have to keep them in your house forever? No. What you do is you call the cops or you call an ambulance or you call a hospital and you say, look, there's this person in my house uh, who's just sitting here. He's asleep. He's um, drugged or he's unconscious. Uh, you don't have the right to kill him, but you have an obligation to, um, uh, what do you call it, to, to uh, call uh, call the cops or, or the hospital or somebody like that. Now, the objection to that is, um, you're going to have, uh, what do they call it, um, a positive obligation. And we libertarians say that there is no such thing as a positive obligation. And now I'm going to get to um, the screen, and I hope I have better luck with it. Let's see if I can erase stuff, clear all drawings. Let me see if I can draw something now. Yes, I can now draw something. And this is either a bagel or a donut. And we have three areas. We have area A, area B, and now all of a sudden I can't write anymore, but at least I, I got the donut or the bagel out there. Do you have the right to homestead? Whoops, it 
it went away. What happened? Come back. Come back. Where the hell is... Where is my... Uh, I'm not having good luck with this. I'm going to try again. Great. Okay. Uh, here's a bagel or a donut. And you got area A, which is a square mile. Area B is the area surrounding it. And then area C is the uh, outside area. Do you have the right to homestead in the... Um, in the um, uh, format B, B is in boy, and I say no. You don't have a right to, uh, to homestead in that format. And by the way, uh, you know the, the Lockean proviso uh, that, that it only works as long as there's as much and as good land left for other people. Well, uh, Stefan Kinsella was kind enough to call this the Blockian proviso, and I'm very um, uh, I don't know honored that that uh, a proviso has been named after me by Stefan Kinsella. And what, what I'm saying here is that you do not, my proviso is you do not have the right to homestead in the format of B. Why not? And now this is before helicopters and no bridges, no tunnels, no uh, pool vaulting, no, none of that. Why don't you have the right to homestead in the area B? Because then you're controlling A without ever having homesteaded it. So it's illegitimate for you to do that. Okay. Now, let's take the question. Um, uh, a couple comes home from a hospital. They have a baby. They put the baby in the crib in the back room, and they don't feed the baby. Do they have the right to not feed the baby? And I say no, because uh, the analogy is that the baby is like A, and, and they are homesteading in the area B. Namely, somebody else wants that baby. Uh, so they have an, a positive obligation to bring that baby to the hospital or to the orphanage or, or, or somewhere like that. Uh, I had to concoct this blocking proviso in order to answer the question of starving the baby. Uh, because what they're doing is they're hogging up the baby and somebody else wants to adopt that baby and, and, and they don't know of the baby. And, and unless the, uh, the couple brings the baby to the hospital or the orphanage or, or uh, to the police station or the fire department or somebody like that, that baby will die. And um, uh, so I, I think that there's a, a direct analogy there. So they have to, uh, um, so let's get in, uh, getting back to the rape woman. She has an obligation uh, to not kill that person, but she has no obligation to uh, keep the baby for nine months. Now, you see, the pro-life people say she has two obligations. One, not to murder, and two, not to evict. Whereas the pro-choice people say she has a right uh, to kill and to evict. So the libertarian evictionist position uh, cuts the loaf in half or cuts the baby in half, if you get back to that um, biblical story. Namely, uh, we give each side half a loaf. With the pro-choice people, we say uh, the baby will be saved. Uh, with the pro-choice people, we say you can rid yourself of the baby whenever you want. And in the first two trimesters, the baby will die. With the pro-life people, we say, well, you can get rid of the, you can evict the baby at any time, but you can never kill it. I shouldn't say it. You can never kill the baby or the person. I'm, 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 I'm trying to train myself out of calling fetuses it. They're he or she. They're, they're people. They're human beings. 
Uh, so uh, evictionism is a, um, a principled compromise. See, uh, an unprincipled compromise is you say two plus two is four, I say two plus two is six, and we compromise two plus two is five. That's an unprincipled compromise because you can't deduce two plus two equals five from anything. Whereas a, uh, a principled compromise is evictionism, namely you can deduce it from something, namely from the fact that the woman owns her body, it's like her house, and somebody's inside of her house. And, and she has a right to evict the person from the house, but not to kill the person, because the person is an innocent person, like the baby inside the mother's womb. So I'm making an analogy between the mother and her house. I'm saying her, her body is like her house. You know, the feminists say our bodies ourselves. Well, that's what I'm saying, but they don't really believe it. I'm, I'm actually uh, believing it. Uh, I, I should bring in a third person here, Hans Hoppe, who I think is a brilliant libertarian, but not on this issue. Again, um, uh, Hans and, and Murray and, and um, uh, Ron are, are all wrong. Hans says, well, it's up to the family. No, it's not up to the family. Uh, this is libertarian law. And libertarian law should uh, should uphold the evictionism. Okay, now you, another objection might be, well, very few babies are uh, the product of rape. What about voluntary sexual intercourse? Didn't the mother make a, a uh, an implicit contract with the baby uh, to keep the baby for nine months? I mean, you know, you engage in um, voluntary sexual intercourse, even with um, uh, prophylactics or condoms or whatever it is, and, and you know that the, there's a 1% or 2% chance that they'll break or malfunction or whatever. So when you engage in voluntary sexual intercourse, you're making a, an implicit contract with the baby to keep the baby for nine months. That would be the objection to my theory. Now, look, I'm not against implicit contracts. You go into a, a restaurant, you order a cup of coffee, and you drink it down, and they say, that'll be a million dollars, please. <laughs> no, you, there's an implicit contract uh, that they're not charging you a million dollars. They can charge you a million dollars. I'm not for price controls, but if they want to charge you a million, they have to uh, make it clear that, that there's a meeting of the minds in, in the contract. So is there a contract? Well, there is one contract, and that's the case of the host mother. A couple is infertile or they're unwilling to bear the baby. So the husband gives the sperm to this woman and he pays her 50,000 bucks. And now he obligates her not to kill the baby and also not to even evict the baby. So that would be uh, contractual. But now forget about the host mother. Let's just take the ordinary case. And I say, no, no, no. This is not a good objection to evictionism because... Uh, for there to be a, an implicit contract, there have to be at least two people. And forget about the father for the moment. Is there um, a contract, implicit contract between the mother and, and the baby? No, because at the time of voluntary sexual intercourse, there is no baby yet. Remember, we said the baby is not going to start until the uh, sperm hits the egg. Well, the sperm takes its own sweet time to get to the egg. It takes between 30 minutes and, and um, 24 hours for the sperm to wiggle its way up the fallopian tubes to get to uh, the womb where the egg is. So at the time of sexual intercourse, there is nobody with whom to have a uh, an implicit contract. So I think that that objection to evictionism fails. Um, Michael M. continues, do you have any sympathy with any libertarians who think abortion is murder? Yes, abortion is murder. Because abortion is two things. It's eviction plus killing. So I'm against abortion. Because abortion is ev eviction plus killing. And I don't mind the eviction, but I, I certainly mind the killing. It's murder. Um, 
my sort of druthers are with the pro-life side. I'm pro-human. Some of my best friends are human beings. My wife is a human being. My kids are human. Uh, my sister is human. Uh, my grandchildren are human. I'm pro-human. And I... Um, uh, I'm happy with the fact that right now, if we adopt evictionism, one third of all babies are safe. Because in the third trimester, if the woman wants to evict the baby, the baby is viable outside the womb. And I'm also encouraged by the fact that as medical technology improves, uh, the area of safety will become more and more. You know that in 500 years, if we don't um, blow ourselves up, uh, the baby will be safe outside of the womb in some sort of super test tube uh, the first day of, of, of its life. So as medical technology improves, instead of only being babies safe for three months, be safe for four months, five months, and so on. Okay, I think I've done enough on inductionism. Um, as I said, I, I've got many, many articles on this, and, and if you're more interested in getting into it, Google me and evictionism. Tyler Grossman, um, I'm going to skip that one. I'm going to go to Charles Farley. How do you respond to critics of anarcho-capitalism that argue corporations will fill the power vacuum left by the state? Well, I think that's a good argument. <laughs> uh, I think that if... Um, uh, we, if, if somehow uh, Biden um, uh, uh, resigned and uh, Kamala Harris resigned and everybody uh, in the Congress resigned and everybody in the Senate, with the exception of Rand Paul, who I like, uh, resigned, well, even Rand Paul, they all resigned. And now we have anarchism. We'd have chaos. I mean, you know, the, the claim against anarchism is it's chaos. Well, it's only chaos given our mindset. If people are the way they are, uh, hardwired not only for, for socialism, but for governmentalism, uh, if the government just disappeared like that uh, with one fell swoop, we would have chaos. And, and somebody would step into it. It might not be corporations. It might be mafia, blood, crips. I don't know, the, the godfather. I, I'm not sure who would take over. Or maybe somebody from some other country would come in uh, and, and take over. Uh, so if anarcho-capitalism, you know, Murray Rothbard once said, if I could press this button and we'd have anarcho-capitalism, I would press this button. I would blister my thumb by pressing that button. I'm not so sure because, you know, many people would die. Many more people would die than are dying now uh, because human beings are such, um, um, I don't know, pinko, commie, governmentalists, uh, you know, that, that, I mean, if we were all libertarians, then there'd be no problem. But we're not all libertarians. Only one or two percent of us are libertarians. Well, you know, I sort of like the blistering of the button with the thumb. Um, it's a good metaphor, but I'm not so sure if I would press it that hard. Jonathan Gress Wright. A lot of people are bullish about the current economy, including many libertarians. See an interview with Captain Leary on reason. Are they right or are there reasons to anticipate another crash soon? I also just wrote a, a, a what do you call it, an op-ed on, on that. And what I said is that economists put the future to show that we have a sense of humor. Because if we really knew what, would, what was going to happen, we'd be filthy rich. And we're not. We're comfortable, you know, PhD economists aren't unemployed, they make a good salary. 
but we're not super rich. And yet, if we knew what the future would bring for the stock market or the bond market or a real estate market or any market, we would be very, very rich. And we're not. And in this op-ed, I came up with all sorts of predictions that were, you know, uh, uh, Paul Krugman was predicting, I don't know, all sorts of things that never happened. I think he predicted that if Donald Trump won, the stock market would crash, and it didn't crash. Uh, he had three or four predictions in there that were all wrong. Um, so I, I don't, I try not to predict, and Austrians don't predict. Why don't we predict? Because we never have ceteris paribus. Look, uh, the minimum wage. I think that if you have a minimum wage and nothing else changes, you'll have unemployment for anyone whose productivity is lower than whatever the minimum wage law is set. So if the minimum wage law is set at $10 an hour and your productivity is $7 an hour, uh, you're not going to get a job because anyone who hires you is going to lose $3 an hour. And if they keep doing that, they'll go broke. On the other hand, suppose we uh, institute a minimum wage, uh, we raise it from 7 to 10, and at the same time, an invention comes that increases the productivity of everybody from 7, who used to have productivity of 7, now has productivity of 10. Well, then there'll be no unemployment from the raise of the minimum wage. See, the Austrian um, um, law only is based on ceteris paribus. Other things constant. If nothing else changes except the minimum wage, then yes, minimum wage will create unemployment. But we can never say any any such thing. Let me go on here. Dave Brenner is threatening risky behavior toward another one that does not actually project violence there opponent of violation of the NAP, uh, for example, firing a bullet one inch above someone's head, polluting the air in adjacent private property. Um, is that a violation of rights? I once visited um, uh, a couple, and they had a son who had a bow and arrow. And he was shooting the bow and arrow against a big tree. The tree was, I don't know, five feet wide, really wide tree. But this was not a bow and arrow for kids, even though he was maybe 13. This was a bow and arrow that could kill people. Uh, you know, th this was a hunting bow and arrow or a target shooting bow and arrow. And I said to the parents, you can't let him shoot that bow and arrow against the tree. Think of the neighbors. How would you like it if one of your neighbors uh, had a tree and was shooting an arrow in your direction at that tree? You wouldn't be too happy with that. Uh, I would say that, you know, the parents should have really been put in jail. Now, I, they were friends of mine, so I didn't call the cops, but I, I told them, do not let that kid shoot that bow and arrow. Uh, if you want to shoot that bow and arrow, you go to a, a target place. With, with have a berm, B-E-R-M, which is a big mountain or, or concrete something. Namely, it has to be safe. You want to you want to shoot, you want to go to a target range, you, you want to shoot a pistol, go to a target range. It's very safe to shoot there because they've got concrete uh, 20 feet back and, and the bullet can't get through. So you shoot a bullet one inch above my head. My God, that's that's a threat. Um, now, look, we did talk about the, uh, what was it, the continuum problem? Well, there's a continuum, but that's way over the continuum. Uh, you shoot a bullet anywhere near me, and that's a threat, and, and I have a right to shoot you back, even though you, you're not uh, trying to shoot me. Uh, then you get into the uh, philosophical issue of, well, what about attempts? I, I attempted to shoot you. It was attempted murder, uh, but I didn't shoot you, so no harm, no foul, no. 
<laughs> it was scary. It was um, uh, uh, going way above over the uh, continuum problem. So I, I think that uh, if you shoot a bullet one inch over someone's head, you, you're you're not a murderer, but you're you're a criminal. Adam, when do words or speech, if at all, become a violation of non-aggression principle? I'm talking about an individual who's mad at me or just mad in general, and they may be talking in an aggressive manner, but I wouldn't feel physically uncomfortable or threatened. However, if the verbal threats are made to me and my family, well, this is the continuum problem again. I really answered that, so I'm not going to go further here. Brian, getting or getting. Senator Sparabas, if Africans had not been brought to North America as slaves, would the Civil War have been fought? Um, uh, here's another question. Let, let me just answer that one. Uh, let me not answer that question. I'm a professor. I'm never supposed to answer questions directly. I'm supposed to go circuitously around. So let me just talk about the Civil War and, and slavery, which is, I think close enough to what he's asking about. At least I'll start that way, and then I'll get closer to his question. Um, a civil war is a war between two parties, each of whom wants to run the whole country. The Spanish Civil War of 1936 was a civil war because the fascists and the commies each wanted to run Spain. The war in Russia of 1917 was a civil war because uh, each side, the uh, the commies and, and the um, czar, each wanted to run the, the whole country. That was a civil war. But what happened in 1861 in, um, in uh, the United States was not a civil war because the South didn't want to run the North. The North wanted to run the South, but the South didn't want to run the North. Rather, the South just wanted to secede. It was a war of secession or a war to prevent Southern secession, or a war between the states, or uh, a war of Northern aggression. Look, when when, uh, when the 13 colonies uh, had a war with England in 1776, what was that? Was that a civil war? No, that was a war of secession. The colonies didn't want to run Britain. Britain wanted to run the colonies. So it was another war of secession, the, the, the war of... Um, um, uh, 1776 and 1861 are very similar. They were both wars of secession. Why would why uh, now we're getting into slavery? Was see a lot of people think that if you favor the South side uh, because it's a secessionist and, and we libertarians favor secession, then somehow you favor slavery. But look, when the Basques want to secede from um, Spain or the uh, Quebecers. Quebecois want to secede from Canada. It had nothing to do with slavery. The uh, war in uh, 17 in Russia and then 36 in Spain had nothing to do with slavery, unless you think czarism was slavery. But uh, uh, slavery and secession are totally uh, separate things. Uh, Abraham Lincoln, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, only, only freed slaves in the South. Not in the north. There was there were slaves in the north. By the way, the first uh, attempt at a secession over slavery was in 1825 with Massachusetts. We had abolitionists. They wanted to secede from the country because there was slavery all over the country. That they didn't do it, but th that they wanted to do that. Uh, there was a very famous uh, statement by uh, Abraham Lincoln that Tom D. Lorenzo dug out. By the way, Tom D. Lorenzo is my mentor on on issues of this sort. Uh, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln said something like this, paraphrase. If I can um, uh, keep the uh, country intact, 
and uh, free all the slaves, I'll free all the slaves. If I can keep the country intact and not free any any one slave, I won't free any slave. I want to keep the country intact and I don't give a rat's ass about slavery. Uh, this is a paraphrase. He didn't use the word rat's ass, but uh, that was the gist of what he was saying. So there was slavery in the North too. Okay, uh, the, the South, the motivation was uh, would be a little harsh uh, to say that slavery played no role at all. Uh, it played some role, but uh, the tariff of abominations, as they called it, um, that was uh, certainly another motivation. Uh, so now let me get back to the question. If Africans had not been brought to North America as slaves, would the Civil War have been fought? Well, probably yes, although, you know, speculative history is, is easy. Anyone can do it. Uh, um, uh, I, I speculate that, yes, uh, there would have been a war over uh, the tariff. But I'm not sure about that. I mean, speculative history is uh, of interest, but, you know, I'm, I'm, that's all I can say about that. Ryan Turnip Seed, how similar is an anarcho-capitalist society to a common law society, colonial America, American Republic, most of England in English history? Well, it's a little similar. I mean, um, you know, the way I see libertarian movement, there are really four or five stages. The first and best stage is anarcho-capitalism because that adheres clearly to uh, the non-aggression principle. But the next stage down, uh, uh, the... Um, and, and that would be mainly associated with uh, with Marty Rothbard. The next stage down would be uh, classical liberalism, where you have a minimal government, and, and the people most associated with that would be Ayn Rand and Robert Nozick. And here the uh, government uh, has the sole role of uh, protecting the property and person of, of, of the citizens. And uh, the armies, courts, and uh, police, and that would be it. And armies not to go and export democracy and police not to stop people from victimless crimes. And um, uh, so that would be the second level. The third level would be Ron Paul with constitutionalism. Why do I put constitutionalism a little lower? Because in the Constitution, you allow to have, uh, what is it, post offices and post roads, which is socialism. So that would be the third level. And then the fourth level I would call uh, classical liberalism. And the people most associated with that would be um, uh, Friedrich Hayek and um, uh, Milton Friedman and uh, maybe Jim Buchanan with the public choice. And they allow all sorts of other things, but very little government. Uh, but they do allow, you know, social security and, and public schools and, and a lot of stuff. But they're, you know, pretty good people. And then the fifth and lowest level would be the uh, thick libertarians who say that if you want to be a libertarian, you can't be a racist or you can't be a sexist. And they add on all sorts of things. Uh, which I think are irrelevant to the um, to the uh, non-aggression principle. I mean, you can you can hate all blacks and still be a libertarian as long as you don't hurt them, uh, or as long as you don't violate their rights. You you can be vicious and nasty as long as you don't violate the, the non-aggression principle, and you can be a, a good libertarian. Uh, a, a good libertarian can have evil thoughts. So I think the thick libertarians are all wrong. Okay, the next one is, oh, what is my opinion on the legacy of Milton Friedman? You know, sometimes I call Milton Friedman a commie 
because, you know, he deviates all over the place. And then my friend uh, and many time co-author Bill Barnett says, well, under whose rule would you rather live? Under Milton Friedman's rule or under um, uh, Barack Obama's rule? <laughs> and all of a sudden, Milton Friedman looks great. And um, uh, on the other hand, Milton Friedman, along with Gary Becker and, and James Buchanan, all regarded Austrianism as a cult, as a religion. And they didn't mean this in a positive way. So... Uh, my uh, assessment of, of uh, Milton Friedman is a mixed one. On the one hand, it's sort of like the girl with the curl. When she was good, she was awfully good. When she was naughty, she was horrid, something like that. When Milton Friedman was good, he was really good. But when he was bad, he was very bad. And Murray Rothbard's analysis of Milton was interesting. He said that uh, he, everything that he specialized, he was bad. And everything he didn't specialize in, he was good. Well, what did he specialize in? Money and education. Those were his two things. Uh, voucher plans, he was horrible. And money, he was very, very bad. He was against the gold standard. He had this thing called, what was it, Free to Choose uh, a TV series. Well, when people were free to choose, they chose gold. And yet he would call us gold bugs and you know denigrate us. And he was very, very good on occupational licensure and minimum wage and free trade. He once said something marvelous. Let me repeat that. What he said was all of us economists, ever since the Adam Smith, the paraphrase here, um, uh, with all of our actions, tariffs are now one-tenth of a percent lower than they otherwise would have been. And with that, we paid for our salary 10,000 times over. Sort of a very modest statement, you know, just one-tenth of a percent lower. But 10,000 times our salary, uh, brilliant, brilliant insight. Uh, so I'm, I'm sort of, you know, a fan of his, but I have reservations about it. I think the last question is coming up. Yes, the last question is, Alvin Mignoni, short of wide-ranging privatization in the healthcare sector, which is likely politically infeasible on a wide scale in the short term, what tort reform would alleviate rising healthcare costs. That's a good, it's sort of a second best question, you know, given that we can't get our druthers, what, what little bit should we get? What little bit we should get is put the AMA in jail. Put those people in jail. Why? What are they doing? What they're doing is having restrictive entry. Look, I have a cousin he got all A's as an undergraduate, and when he graduated, he um, applied to 10 medical schools and got into none. The next year, he applied to every medical school in the country, got into none. He was a kid with an all-A average, he majored in, I don't know, biochemistry. So he went over to Europe, and he got an MD there, and then he came back and wanted to practice, and he spent several years in court trying to fight the AMA because they didn't like his license. What the AMA, look, if you and I were to set up a medical school, and we could, I mean, I'm not a, a physician, but uh, and neither are you, uh, but we hire doctors and we say, uh, you know, you're a teacher. What would happen to us if they would go to jail? They'd put us in jail for starting another medical school. And any medical school that has more intake than um, is allowed by the AMA, uh, they get, uh, I forget what it's called, disbarred or dis something. The, the medical school can't operate. So the AMA is evil. Uh, that's why we have so few doctors compared to the need for doctors. And the proof of this is that doctors make, I don't know, uh, in my research, I think it was eight times as much as PhD biologists. 
why did I pick PhD biologist? Because <clears throat> I figured people who get a PhD in biology don't hate blood and have enough somethings to get through medical school. And, and doctors make eight or 10 times as much as them, which shows that, you know, the supply curve uh, is being shifted to the left by the AMA. So if I could do one thing without changing anything else, what I would do is get rid of the AMA and allow uh, medical school freedom, allow medical schools to start. Now, look, medical school, uh, you know, you have to have doctors as the professors. I I can't be a, a medical. I could be the president of a medical school, but I I can't be a professor of med medicine because I don't know the first thing about it. So that would be my answer to that. Well, look, uh, uh, it's been an honor and a privilege to be on Ask an Austrian. Uh, this is really Ask an Austro Libertarian because most of the questions were Libertarian, not Austrian. But what the heck, um, uh, who's, who's going to fight over details? I enjoyed myself greatly, and I hope that I uh, helped uh, people's thinking. And I've given you my email address, so if you want to be in touch with me and ask more questions or have follow-ups, I'll be glad to uh, continue with you. So that's it for me. Take care.